Last Sunday, Paul is in Corinth. We looked at the ministry of Paul in Corinth rather extensively, but we noted that in the midst of so much good stuff happening, that Paul was filled with fear, which is quite bizarre when it comes to the Apostle Paul because he's the furthest thing from a man being afraid, right? I mean, Paul's the guy that gets stoned to the point of death, gets up and goes back into town. He never runs from a fight. And yet in Corinth, good things are happening. He wants to stay there. He wants to enjoy them. And he's afraid. And so the Lord meets him. I encourage you to listen to last week's Bible study. If you struggle with fear at all, I think the Lord really, the way that he handles Paul, sets out a template for how the Lord might handle us and minister to us and our fear. But either way, Paul, he's afraid. He's thinking his time might be cut short. He's worried about that. So often he would go, he would do the hard work of the ministry. He would sow seeds, he would labor, and he would be forced out of town, never able to enjoy the fruit of his labor. And so he's in this mode, he's in Corinth, God meets him, God speaks to him, and God gives him a promise that no one would attack to hurt him. Now, this was not a universal promise because once Paul would leave Corinth, we know that he would be continually attacked. People would still try to hurt him. He would be hurt often. But while in Corinth, God gives him this promise and he makes good on this promise by allowing Paul the opportunity to spend 18 months in Corinth, we're told in verse 11, teaching the word of God. But we're also about to see that God, in making good with this promise, would deliver Paul from the very situation he feared the most, a group of malcontent Jews coming to attack him. Verse 12, so we're told when Gallo, who is pro-council of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul. This is what he was afraid of. And we're told that he brought, they brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galio said to the Jews, well, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O oh Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you, but... If this is just a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourself. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. Now, this is kind of a bizarre twist in the ministry, the life of Paul. Like, the event itself is not abnormal. Paul preaching the gospel, God working in incredible ways, Jews getting ticked off about it causing a stir about it, seizing Paul and bringing him before the authorities. This has happened before in Paul's ministry, but the result of this scene is radical and, and much different. Before Paul could even take the opportunity to mount for himself a defense, we're told that this proconsul cuts Paul off, doesn't even allow Paul to get in a word, to defend himself. He instead dismisses the entire complaint, citing it as being nothing more than just a petty religious matter. He says, if this is just an issue of words and names, your own law. Look to it yourself. I don't, I don't want to waste my time dealing with these things. They're petty. And then note, verse 16, he drove them from the judgment seat. He, he, get out of here. I'm sick of you. This is annoying. This is so petty. This is so trite. It's so trivial. And then we're told the Greeks take Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no, no notice of these things. <laughs> it, it all blew up in the Jews' face. Not only is the claim dismissed, is Paul freed, but Sosthenes, who is the, the ruler of the synagogue, the guy in charge now, the guy that probably replaced Crispus as the ruler of the synagogue after Crispus converted and started following Jesus and, and, and becoming part of the ministry of the apostle Paul. So you have this guy, Sothenes, more than likely the guy bringing the complaint, the complaint gets dismissed, and then the Jews beat on him. They beat on him. They take all of the, 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 uh, the Greeks beat on him, all the energy, all of the, their annoyance. They just focus it on this guy. Now, what's interesting about Sosthenes is according to 1 Corinthians 1, 
after he takes this beating, at some point, Sothenes would become a follower of Jesus himself and would become a traveling companion with the apostle Paul. So Sothenes brings this complaint against Paul. It gets thrown out, he gets beat on, and he becomes a Christian. Now we're not told how he became a Christian. And yet I can imagine that after taking a beating, there, well, just so happened to be a man in Corinth familiar with what it felt like to take beatings, who probably jumped at the opportunity to minister to another man and his beatings. A man who had experienced the same kind of harm. I think Paul was the first one to dust off Sothenes, probably took him back to his house, tended to his wounds. His enemy understood, and this man not only gives his life to Jesus, but follows Paul. Well, we're told in verse 18 that Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. We discussed Aquila and Priscilla last week. And we're told that Paul had his hair cut off at Chincrea. It's kind of a suburb of Corinth, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, the church. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a a longer time with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing. After remaining in Corinth for a year and a half, Paul senses the need to go to Jerusalem in time for one of the three mandatory Jewish feasts. We don't know which feast Paul felt inclined to get to Jerusalem to attend, but he's got this motivation. So this is his motivator, leaving Corinth. He wants to get to Jerusalem. He's got a timetable. He's, the clock is ticking. He, he's, he's working, got a plan. He's got to get there in time. Furthermore, it would seem that the, the motivator behind his desire to get to Jerusalem for this feast was specifically connected to some type of vow that Paul had made while in Corinth. Though we're not told specifically what vow the apostle Paul made, the detail that he had his hair cut off before leaving Corinth indicates that the apostle Paul very well might have taken the vow of the Nazarite. According to Numbers chapter six, the purpose of the vow of the Nazarite was to express a unique consecration to God by promising to abstain from three things. Anything dealing with the grapevine, a promise to not cut one's hair, and to never come in contact with a dead body. Now, in some instances, the vow of the Nazarite was given for a lifetime. Two examples we have of this would be Samson taking the vow of the Nazarite for a lifetime, and very possibly John the Baptist. There's some thought that maybe John the Baptist had also taken such a lifetime vow, but the majority of the time when it came to the vow of the Nazarite, it wasn't a lifelong kind of pursuit, but rather a temporary commitment, a temporary vow for a specific period of time. And since this was the case, once you completed the the time allotted for the vow, according to number six, you would cut your hair and present your hair as an offering at the temple before the Lord. That might explain why Paul's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He, He wants to not only celebrate a feast, but he's made this vow, he's cut his hair, the vow has come to a completion, and he wants to offer this before the Lord. Now, there's three theories as to why Paul would have taken such a vow in Corinth. First, by taking this ceremonial vow particular to the law, which was a public vow. You would see it. You would abstain from the fruit of the vine. You wouldn't come in contact with the dead. And and you started looking really shaggy. It was a public type of vow. It was visible. People knew that you were taking the vow of the Nazarite. And it might be that Paul took such a public vow in order to fend off criticism that he had become anti-Jewish. In verse 6, Paul had bluntly told the Jewish Christians, right? Uh, the, Jewish, the Jews in Corinth, 
your blood be upon your own hands. I am clean from now I'll go to the Gentiles. Not to mention the complaint levied against him in verse 13 claimed that Paul was seeking to persuade men to worship God contrary to the law. So there was some rumblings that this man, this apostle, that Paul had kind of gone off the deep end, that in his pursuit of the Gentiles, he had become subsequently anti-Jew. Now understand, Paul would fight tooth and nail against the notion that Gentiles, non-Jews, should be required to adhere to any of the Jewish ceremonies or traditions. But that being said, Paul also saw nothing wrong with Jewish Christians taking part in exercises that were particular to their ethnic heritage. The Jewish people, they were an ethnic group, a people group, and their, the religion of Judaism was intertwined to kind of what it meant to be a Jew. So Paul had no problem if you were a Jewish believer, a Jewish Christian, enjoying and participating in some of the things that made you Jewish, even if they had religious undertones, as long as you weren't doing any of these things to, uh, to earn God's favor, or you weren't uh, engaging in any of these uh, as opposed to what Christ had done for you on the cross. So as long as you kept in mind that my salvation comes in Jesus and him alone, that is by grace through faith, not of myself, but a gift of God, if you wanted to participate, go to the temple, pray at the temple, participate in some of the feasts, have your children be circumcised. If you were a Jew, and these things so intertwined with what it meant to be a Jew, Paul had no problems with you engaging in those things. So it's likely that reinforcing his own appreciation of his Jewish heritage by taking such a public vow might indicate why he did so. Then he heads to Jerusalem for the feast. Secondly, the vow may have been Paul's way of reminding himself of the promise that God had made to him while in Corinth. Paul, struggling with fear, God meeting him in his point of need, ministering to his heart, giving him promises. It might be that, that this vow had been Paul's way of just keeping in his own mind a remembrance of what God had told him. While I'm in Corinth, no one's gonna harm me. No one's gonna hurt me. I've got to rest in this promise. I've got to hold to this promise. And so to remind myself of what God has said, I'm gonna take this vow for my time in Corinth, which would explain why he's leaving Corinth. He would cut his hair. Thirdly, the third theory might be that in light of the intense immorality that permeated the city of Corinth, that Paul took the vow of the Nazarite to express his dedication and separation for the purposes of the Lord. He might have done this in kind of a way that would be a constant reminder of the stakes concerning the constant barrage of temptation that would come his way. Three theories. You can pick one or all three. It's up to you. Can't say with any uh, sort of certainty, but I can say this with certainty, that Paul did not take the vow of the Nazarite to earn more of God's favor. I could say that without a fact. Paul did not take the vow to cause God to be more pleased with him, nor did he take the vow of the Nazarite to demonstrate his ability to remain holy through the flesh. The vow had nothing to do with his salvation or with his sanctification because no work has a value in either of those two realms. Understand, thank goodness that you're saved, that you're judged, that God views you not on the promises you make to God. Because guess what? You fail at them all the time. You make a promise to God, even sincerely, and guess what you still do? You still fail. If there was a promise you could make, that would make you more holy or more sanctified. Then Christ's work on the cross would be for naught and scripture would be lying because we're told that not only is none righteous, no, not one, not only are we saved by faith, but scripture's clear, we're made perfect by faith. The only work that sanctifies me, the only work that causes me to grow are not the promises I make to God, but the promises he's made to me that I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, that when God sees me, he sees not my sin, but he sees Jesus's blood covering me. Now let's get to the motion of the text. Paul is in his second missionary journey and he departs from Corinth. Once again, he's leaving behind Silas and Timothy 
to care for the needs of this Corinthian church. We've seen him do this before. Paul heads from Corinth for Ephesus, and he takes with him Aquila and Priscilla. Now, though Paul's time in Ephesus is brief, I mean, he makes it clear to them, even upon arriving, that I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. And a really weird twist. He goes into the synagogue, he proclaims Christ, and something strange takes place. He's received. He's productive. Like the only other time we see this type of reaction of Paul's preaching in the synagogue was back in Berea. So he gets to Ephesus, he goes into the synagogue, he starts preaching, and the people want him to stay. They're excited about what he has to say, but he's already made this promise to go to Jerusalem, so he has to leave. But he promises to return again, God willing, leaving behind Aquila and Priscilla, which kind of makes sense. Maybe this reaction, what we see taking place within the synagogue, Aquila and Priscilla set out with Paul to go to Syria upon seeing maybe some of the fruit that might be uh, yielding itself in Ephesus. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla. So Paul sailed from Ephesus alone. And when he had landed in Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. It happens really quick, doesn't it? Like just two quick verses. But that's the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Like, don't forget that we mark the beginning and the end of Paul's missionary journeys from his departing from and returning to the city of Antioch. From Ephesus, Paul sails to Caesarea, big port city, where he, we're told, goes up to Jerusalem. Everyone went up to Jerusalem. It was the highest point of elevation to celebrate the feast, to present his special offering. Then, we're told after spending some time with the church there in Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. Now, this is a, a geographical direction down from Jerusalem in elevation, but not directionally uh, down. He moves north, but he's going down in elevation. That's some of the language and explains it. Keep in mind that at this point, when he returns to Antioch, that he has been gone for approximately three years. And I just want to take a moment and kind of recap this three-year season of ministry. You might be hard-pressed to find a three-year period of ministry by anyone else to have yielded such results in history. I mean, think about it. Not only does he revisit the churches that he had planted in Galatia during his first missionary journey, but this second endeavor took Paul from Asia Minor, intercontinental, to Europe. In these three years, he leaves behind a church in Philippi with Luke pastoring that church. He'll write a letter to that church known as Philippians. He plants a church in Thessalonica, writes two letters to the Thessalonians. He leaves a church in Berea, a church in Corinth. Silas and Timothy are presently pastoring that church. He writes two letters there as well. And he even begins a ministry in Ephesus presently being overseen by Aquila and Priscilla. Three years, look at the churches that Paul has planted. The substantial ministries he's left behind, quite incredible. Well, we're told, verse 23, that after Paul had spent some time in Antioch, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Pergia in order, strengthening the disciples. Now, though we're not sure how long Paul stayed in Antioch, no doubt plenty of time to rest, to recoup, but to probably provide a report, the itch quickly returned and Paul was back out, right? Heading into the regions of Galatia and Pergia, which launches his third missionary journey. Now, Luke doesn't mention any of the particular cities that Paul visited in Galatia or Pergia, but we've put them on the map. From his first missionary journey, we can conclude that as he goes through these regions that he's revisiting towns we're familiar with, Derby. Lystra, Iconium, the other Antioch. But then this scene shifts. As Paul's working his way through Galatia and Pergia, verse 24, we're told that a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Well, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, 
they took him aside and explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately. And before we get to the particulars of our text, we should kind of address a larger point of consideration. Like, why in the world would Luke shift the scene so quickly off of Paul's third missionary journey? So we're tracking with Paul. He leaves Corinth. He gets to Ephesus. From Ephesus, Caesarea. Caesarea to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Antioch. From Antioch, he launches back out, heads to Pergia and Galatia. So we've been tracking all of this. But why in this moment would, would Luke, our author, shift back quickly off of what Paul's doing in Galatia and Pergia and instead focusing back to what's taking place in this scene of, of Ephesus? And the answer is that while what Paul's doing in Galatia and Pergia are important, it's an important ministry, it's an important work, it's not critical to the larger story arc. What's happening in Ephesus, as we'll see, was more important. The events that occur in Ephesus while Paul was away set the context for a situation he would have to deal with upon his arrival back. So Luke, recognizing that when Paul returns to Ephesus, some weird things happen, instead of tracking with Paul all the way, he summarizes, focuses a, focus our attention back to Ephesus, includes Apollos, because what's happening while Paul's away is important for us understanding his return. Now let's set the scene. Between Paul's initial arrival in Ephesus and his return, this is while Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus, overseeing the ministry. Luke tells us that a certain Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus and began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now let's profile this man Apollos a little bit. First, Apollos was ethnically Jewish. We're told he's a Jew, a certain Jew. Apollos is probably not his birth name, but probably his Roman name given after the mythological god Apollo. So no ethnic Jew would have named their son specifically Apollo. He probably had a Hebrew name in addition to his Roman name, but we're only given Apollos. Like Paul is his Roman name. Saul is his Hebrew name. John, Roman name, Mark, uh, or John, Hebrew name, Mark, Roman name. We see this happen all the time. We're also told that Apollos was born in Alexandria, Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, and it boasted not just a significantly large Jewish population, but Alexandria had become the intellectual hub of the world. It had supplanted Athens. That's also important for our consideration because as we noted last week, the reason Aquila and Priscilla came from Rome to Corinth was an edict issued by Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome. That same edict also applied to the Jews living in Alexandria, which might give us an indication why Apollos had to leave Alexandria and why he's come to Ephesus to begin with. We're also told that he's eloquent. He's a Jew born in Alexandria, Alexandria and he's eloquent. The word uh, for eloquent, logios, means more than just his speech, his elegance of speech. The word itself means that Apollos was learned, or literally a man of letters, skilled in literature and the arts, first in history, the antiquities. So he's eloquent, well-rounded knowledge base, but we're also told that Apollos was mighty in the scriptures, well-rounded in regards to the things that he understood, the things he was taught just growing up in Alexandria. But beyond that, his specific area of expertise would have been the Hebrew scriptures. Apollos, like Paul, was a scholar when it came to the law and the Old Testament prophets. Beyond that, we're told that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Aside from having a knowledge base of Judaism, at some point in his educational development, Apollos had been exposed to some knowledge of the life, the ministry, and the teachings of Jesus. You should note that Egyptian Christians, known today as Coptic Christians, you hear about them a lot in the news because they're experiencing an incredible persecution, but Coptic Christians believe that the church in Alexandria was originally founded by none other than Mark. So Apollos has been instructed in the way of the Lord. We're also told that he's fervent in spirit. The word fervent, it means to boil with heat. 
He was a man of passion, a man who loved God. His love for God burned in his soul. He's a passionate man who spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Because of his passion, his education, and his natural giftings, Apollos had a knack for communicating the truth of God. He loved to teach people, to communicate the truth of God. He was an evangelist. And yet, while he was diligent to speak the things that he knew with accuracy, which was a limited version of Jesus, it's also clear something was missing in the life of Apollos. Like his theology was incomplete. We're told that Apollos knew only the baptism of John, which gives us some clues into what he would have known. Apollos would have rightly understood if he understood or was trained by some of the disciples of John. He would have known that Jesus was the Messiah, something John proclaimed. He would have realized the importance in the life of people, that of repentance, something John taught. But Apollos didn't have a full picture. It was incomplete. It's likely that what was missing, if it's based totally on the ministry of John, that what's missing in Apollos' understanding is really the gospel, the good news. He knew of Jesus' ministry. He knew of his teaching. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. John said all of this. But it's likely that Apollos didn't understand that salvation came through Jesus' death on the cross, nor had he probably heard of Jesus' glorious resurrection. And you know, I don't think that that's really a mark on Apollos' character. It would seem Apollos, his understanding, it was incomplete, not because like he didn't desire truth, but because no one had taught him. It wasn't his fault. Like he wasn't leaving out details on purpose. It's not as though Apollos came to Ephesus and is blatantly proclaiming heresy. He just didn't know that there was actually more to the story. And yet, I think we should commend Apollos, right? For at least he was bold enough to communicate what he did know. You know, sadly, many times we fall into the trap of believing we have to know everything before we can say anything. Have you ever allowed Satan to whisper that into your ear? Oh, you shouldn't talk about Jesus. What if they ask you a question you can't answer? I'll give you some advice. Say, I don't know. It's okay. Like the burden of full knowledge is on God, not you. Like it's okay to admit, man, that's a really good question. I don't know, but I can promise I'm going to go look it up. I'm going to do a little research on that. I'll get back to you. Like that's just being honest that you're not all knowing. It's being honest that, that, that you're not God. See, Apollos, He teaches us that you don't have to know everything before you can say anything. You see, the key to evangelism, friend, isn't always knowing more to say, but being bold enough to say what you already know. (laughs) Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord. He had this fervor for God, and he taught what he knew. And there's Aquila and Priscilla, right? Listening, thinking, man, there's some gifting there. God's doing some, but you know, Something's missing. Something's a little off, which also tells us that Apollos, if we're setting this full profile, he was teachable. You see, upon hearing him speak in the synagogue and recognizing that the man didn't have the full story, Luke is very clear that Aquila and Priscilla take Apollos aside and explain the way of God to him more accurately. And to Apollos' credit, he didn't resist their instruction, did he? Here was an educated Jew from the intellectual hub of the world, an expert in scripture, being willing to humble himself to the instruction of a few tent makers. And it's a result of that, that Apollos was used by God in amazing ways. Look at verse 27. After receiving instruction, Apollos desired to cross to Achaia. So the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples there to receive him when he arrived. And we're told that Apollos greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. 
Apollos leaves Ephesus with this letter of endorsement from the brethren, no doubt, Aquila and Priscilla. He lands in Corinth. Achaia is kind of the greater region. And we're told, look at it again, he greatly helped. He wasn't just a help. He greatly helped those who had believed, the church, through grace. I think probably the most significant difference in Apollos' theology, that the thing that, that Aquila and Priscilla communicated to him that probably rocked his world and changed his life, we see it, is that he, he, he transitioned from the gospel of repentance, which is important, to a gospel of grace, which is more important. While Paul would commend Apollos and his ministry in Corinth. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul mentions the ministry of Apollos here in Corinth. Keep in mind that there is no reference of Apollos ministering in Ephesus after receiving a more accurate understanding concerning the things of God. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. So Apollos comes to Ephesus, he begins to teach. Aquila and Priscilla notice something's missing. They pull him aside. They let him know. Then the way the text flows is that upon having his understanding broadened, Apollos now wants to go to Corinth, so he does. There's no mention of him going back to correct, to elaborate, to continue to communicate anything else in Ephesus. And that's important as we'll see in a moment. Now, two quick observations before we move on. Apollos. Apollos illustrates that the most important characteristic that God requires of a man or woman seeking to be used by God in ministry is not necessarily natural gifting. I'm a good example of that. I have very little of it. You don't have to be naturally gifted. Nor do you necessarily need increased education. See, Apollos had both, but something was missing, right? You see, the thing that God cares about more than anything else, and you can look at it historically, the people that God uses, not always the most naturally gifted, not always the most intellectual, most educated, but it's always the humble. It's always people that are willing to receive instruction and to receive accountability. Those are the things that God looks for most when he calls a man or woman. God doesn't always call the equipped, but friend, he always equips the called. Are you humble? Sensitive to the moving of his spirit, willing to place yourself under the accountability and instruction of others. Apollos was, and he was used by God in awesome ways. The second observation I can't help but, but, but consider before we move on is that of Aquila and Priscilla and how they were willing to pour themselves into the life of Apollos. Like, are you are you pouring yourself into the life of someone else? Like, thank goodness that Aquila and Priscilla were willing to pull Apollos aside and invest in his life. Thank goodness they were willing to take him aside and broaden his understanding, teaching him things concerning God. Thank goodness they were willing to put their necks on the line, to vouch for him as he was filling the call to go to Corinth and minister. You know, this is an important reality that even an Apollos needs an Aquila and Priscilla if they're going to be successful in ministry. Do you have an Aquila and Priscilla? Are you being an Aquila or Priscilla? Well, chapter 19, verse 1, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Let's get to the motion of the text for a moment. Paul leaves Antioch. His desire is to make good on the promise he had made to the Ephesians, that he would come again if God willed it. However, instead of returning to Ephesus the way that he had come by sea, Paul comes over land. He comes from the east, not the west, through Galatia and Pergia. No, Paul would spend three years ministering in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, the entire chapter, all of chapter 19, documents Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So we're actually going to leave establishing a profile of this city to next Sunday because I want to continue because there's something important we got to get. Picking back up in verse 1, he arrives to Ephesus and he finds some disciples. So Paul says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. 
So Paul said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they replied, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that you should believe on him who would come after, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Paul returns to Ephesus and immediately finding some disciples, as we noted, there are 12 of them in all. He asks them, something's curious right from the beginning. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It would appear by Paul's inquiry that something was off. He's hanging out with these guys. He's ministering to them. They're ministering. like They're just chilling, having some coffee, getting into scripture, watching a ball game. But, but Paul just like notices, man, there's just something, something a little different, something a little off. Something's not exactly right, but he can't put his finger on it. While these men proclaim Christ, which is why Paul finding them, why he found them, it was clear that they didn't fully understand the life of Christ. They knew of Christ, but they didn't know the life of Christ. Understand this question of Paul about the Holy Spirit was not really about the Holy Spirit. I think that's sometimes why we get off with this passage, but was asked to gain a better understanding in regards to what these men really believe. Like the emphasis here of the question is not on the Holy Spirit, but trying to ascertain what these men believed, right? You were given the Holy Spirit when you believe, not about the Holy Spirit, but about their belief, understanding their belief system. Let me give you an example of this. If I were to ask someone a question, hey, did you receive a warm greeting from Linda Little when you visited Calvary 316? If the answer to that question was, I have not so much as heard as whether there is a Linda Little at Calvary 316. It becomes evident you've never actually been to Calvary 316 because everyone that walks in the door gets greeted by the most hospitable person in the world, Linda, right? So it's not necessarily about Calvary 316. I want to know if you've actually been there. So I'm going to ask you if you know Linda. Because if you've been here, you know Linda. See, that's what's happening. He's wanting to ascertain what they believe, so he phrases this question in such a way. <laughs> it also explains why upon their answer that we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, that look at what Paul's follow-up question was. It wasn't focused on now explaining the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, but Paul asked what? He says, into what then were you baptized? Like he skips over the Holy Spirit. He goes, right, still trying to understand their belief system. You see, if they had believed in Jesus as the basis of their salvation, they would have known that there was a Holy Spirit. Why? Because they would have experienced the Holy Spirit indwelling regeneration. They would have known because they had been there. The question is Paul trying to uncover the belief system, their response becomes very revealing. Paul says, into what then were you baptized? Their reply, into John's baptism. You know, one of the reasons that this passage gets complicated is that these men are first introduced to us as being disciples, finding disciples. And it is true that Luke references disciples when he does this and acts. Like 99.999% of the time, he's always referring to Christians. It's true. But keep in mind, note, that there's some context established. The Greek word disciple, it doesn't mean Christian. It simply means a learner or a student. And context, and consistent with the larger flow of the narrative, I don't think these men were Christians. Like, I, I'm actually convinced that the 12 men were actually disciples of Apollos, who had not received the same corrective instruction of Aquila and Priscilla, who, you should keep in mind, had already left for Rome. We, we won't find a mention of Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus at this juncture. It's likely, historically, that when 
Apollos goes to Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla go back to Rome for a time. We don't know how long. They do come back to Ephesus, but there's some complex natures there. This would then explain why Luke gives us the backstory of Apollos in Ephesus, right? Why we have this context, why Paul starts his third missionary journey. Paul, he arrives, he meets these guys, he recognizes something's off. He asks the questions to diagnose what's off. Now that he's done that, that what's wrong with these men is that they have an incomplete belief system concerning Jesus. What does he do? He continues by explaining to them that while John indeed baptized a baptism of repentance, he also told, he also taught the people that they should believe on him who would come after, that is on Christ Jesus. Note the emphasis is on belief, that you should believe, not just follow, not just accept, not just know, but believe. Changing of the mind that changes direction. See, Paul's point was that while John was interested in the Jewish people accepting Jesus as their Messiah, John wanted them to believe on Jesus as their Savior. It seems they had the first half, not the second. They accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they hadn't come to the point of understanding the importance of now believing on Jesus as a Savior. Like, I hope you realize you can have a lot of beliefs concerning Jesus. But there is only one belief that will save a man from his sins. You can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You can believe that he's the promised Messiah, the Prince of Peace, your comforter. You can believe that Jesus is the moral authority of the world. You can even believe that Jesus is your BFF, all of which are true. But if you don't believe on him, that is on Christ Jesus as your Savior, None of those other beliefs matter because you will remain lost in your sins. Like, so Paul opens their understanding. Look at their reaction. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, whether they were physically baptized in water as a symbolic act or not, I could come down on either side of the argument in regards to this passage. There is something we can say with certainty. Upon hearing of their need to believe on him, that being Jesus, as their savior, these men immediately placed their faith in Christ and experienced the miracle of salvation and regeneration. Look at what Luke says in particular. Luke says, quote, they were baptized. Baptismo in the Greek means to be immersed, cleansed by submerging to be made clean. They were baptized in the name, literally or literally on the account of the Lord Jesus. Like the reality is, is that, that you could accurately translate what, Paul, what Luke is saying here as they were cleansed on account of their Lord Jesus. It's as though they came to the realization, the revelation that they could have cried out and sang, as Edward Mote so aptly wrote, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The light bulb went off to believe on Jesus, that they were baptized in Jesus, covered by Jesus, the blood of Jesus placed on their account. Please consider this morning. Is your hope built on something more than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Is your hope of salvation, is your hope of acceptance by God, is your hope of eternal life based in anything other than Jesus and the work he accomplished on the cross? his name and the righteousness found in it, is it based in anything else? Your effort, your works, is it based in confession? Your faithfulness to confess your sins, that your salvation, your hope is based in the fact that you've been a good Catholic. I, can, I confess often. Is it taking communion? Is it religious rites? Is that the basis? 
of your hope. I pray this morning that you'll realize it is nothing but wholly leaning on Jesus' name that can save a man from his sin. But look, when Paul had laid his hands on them, so there's two acts. They're baptized, and then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. It's interesting to me, but while these men understood the nature of their sin, they understood their need of repentance. At this juncture, they now have already accepted Jesus as their savior. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They've been regenerated. The Spirit of God has come within them. Paul recognizes that they still need something else. So he comes, he arrives to Ephesus. He realizes, man, these guys are off. They've got some knowledge of Jesus as their savior, as their Messiah, but not as their savior. It's the belief that's off. And so he asks these questions. He illuminates their understanding. They immediately respond. They're filled. They're saved. They're regenerated. They're baptized. They're washed over, cleansed, white as snow by the blood of Jesus. But then Paul's like, you need something else. And so he actively lays his hands on them. For these men, there was something of vital importance that couldn't be left out. They needed one more thing, the Holy Spirit. We've mentioned this before, but there are three Greek prepositions concerning the Holy Spirit that help us understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We find often the Holy Spirit being with us, this being para, to be alongside. It's the word that we get parallel, that the Holy Spirit is parallel with all of us, convicting us of sin, bringing us to Christ. But then there's a second ministry of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit goes from being parallel to now coming inside, in, E-N or I-N. It's literally the indwelling of the Spirit necessary for regeneration. This was happening when they're baptized here in this moment when they accept Jesus, when they believe on Jesus, the spirit comes inside of them. But then there's a third role. What Paul does moves beyond that. He lays his hands and we're told that what? The spirit came upon them, epi. It's where the spirit indwells a person, overflows from a person, enables a person with power to live the life they've been called to live. Understand the idea of this word in context to the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you inevitably get upon you whatever it is you were baptized into. Just take water baptism. When we go over to Fort Yargo and we do a water baptism at the lake, a man or woman enters, they're immersed into the water. They're baptized into the water. And as a result, they come out of the water and that in which they were baptized into is now where? Not in them, but upon them. And then what's fascinating is they come out of the water and friends and family come up and bear hugs with no concern that they're sopping wet. And what happens? You're now sopping wet. What was upon them now transfers and impacts you. See, the Holy Spirit is parallel, convicting of, of sin. We come to Christ, we believe on Jesus' work. We're filled with the Spirit. It comes inside of us. We're saved. But then there is another ministry of the Holy Spirit where he begins to overflow from our lives, where what's inside of us comes upon us. It's like when I went to Waffle House as a kid, my grandfather always took us to Waffle House. He never allowed me to have syrup. I always had waffles with just butter. And I couldn't figure it out as an adult why I couldn't syrup on everything, but I, I just can't eat a Waffle House waffle with anything but butter cut into squares. I eat like a pizza. Since I was a kid, the reason why my mom explained later is that Big O just did not want to deal with sticky fingers. Like he knew that his three-year-old grandson, if he gave that three-year-old syrup, syrup would not just be on his fingers, but it would be upon everything else. You see, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That it becomes sticky. It's on me. And every person I come in contact with gets the residue, experiences it. Understand, spirit-filled is not a title. To be spirit-filled, it's not a description of what you are. It's a condition. 
I'm spirit-filled. It's something I'm experiencing. It's a constant, continual experience that Christians are able to enjoy with the person of the Holy Spirit. Go back through our travels and acts over and over and over and over and over again. Christians have the Holy Spirit coming upon them over and over and over. Same group of people. Why? Because it's how I interact with the Spirit of God. That in my weakness, I come and I say, Father, pour your Spirit upon me. I feel weak. I'm unable. I'm struggling. What I have here is not enough. I need something more. This morning, as we transition our service back to a time of worship, I want you to examine yourself and ask. I want you to ask yourself. I want you to take an evaluation of yourself. What evidence is there in your life that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit? Is your Christian life characterized by human failing or supernatural power? Do you want to live the life that you've been called to? But this experience is nothing but setback after setback, frustration after frustration. I've been called by God, but I'm unable to follow the call. You're right. You are unable. On your own. Jesus never called us to do anything in regards to the Christian life apart from the empowering of the Spirit of God. He's got 120 people there on Mount, the Mount of Olives. He says, go into the world with the gospel. Make disciples of the nations. <laughs> but before you do, go to Jerusalem and just stay there because you can't do it. These are people saved, regenerated, made new, born again by the blood of Christ. And yet even Jesus knew <laughs> it would be a disaster for them to go anywhere, to do anything to represent him at all apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, go to Jerusalem and wait for what? The Holy Spirit to come upon you. I would say 100% of our problems, 100% of our struggles, and the Christian life boils down to one thing. Me trying to do something apart from the Holy Spirit. Me trying to live holy apart from the Holy Spirit. Me trying to love my wife apart from the Holy Spirit. Me trying to be a dad apart from the Holy Spirit. You can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit, friend. You weren't created for that. You need the Spirit inside of you, flowing from you, empowering you.